Welcome to the Smeichel Speaks podcast channel. I'm Joanne Smeichel, and I'm delighted that you tuned in for relevant leadership learning that will help you continue to soar. Enjoy this episode. I am delighted to have one of the country's foremost authorities on sleep medicine as my guest today. Dr. Joyce Lee Iannati is the Director of Sleep Disorders, the Sleep Disorders Center at Banner University Medical Center in Phoenix, Arizona. She is also Associate Professor of Neurology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. She is triple board certified in general neurology, sleep medicine, and vascular neurology. Dr. Lee Iannati is passionate, passionate, passionate about public awareness of the interconnection between sleep and brain-body health. Welcome, Dr. Iannati. Thank you so much, Dr. Smichael. It is really a pleasure to be here. Um, if you don't mind, I just want to take a moment to um, kind of talk about our connection that goes way back to 2020. Um, you and I were in the American Academy of Neurology Women in leading women leading in neurology program. I can't believe it's been already four years, but you served as a coach for 10 physician women. And I want to thank you because that that ex whole experience was just extremely life-changing. And I'm grateful you to you to this day. Well, first everybody needs to know that that was not part of the script. That was totally spontaneous. So just so people know that. Thank you, Joyce. I am I am privileged, I am blessed to do work that I love, but more importantly, work that is my divine purpose. I know that the Lord sent me here to do this work, to do the work like the developmental work with you and the other women and women leading in neurology. So thank you and know that it's a gift in my life and I love it. So thank you. There's a, there's a lot I wanna talk to you about related to sleep health. But before we get started, how in the world does a person get interested in neurology and in sleep health? How in, the, how in the world does a woman from South Carolina, an Asian American woman raised there, care, find out about, want to explore sleep, neurology and all that stuff? Sure. Um, I won't take us too back, too way back, but I will say I've always been um, very curious about medicine, about the brain, about the sciences. Um, I'm the only first and first physician in my entire family. Um, but I knew it was something that really intrigued me. Um, but I do want to preface like the rest of the discussion and say, my path was not always straight and narrow. It was actually very loopy. It was kind of going forward, moving back, making decisions, going backwards to other decisions that I might have regretted. So I always loved the brain. I knew I wanted to do something in neurosciences. And Joanne, you may not be aware of this, but I was actually initially on a path to become like a research neuroscientist. And no, so I didn't through, know that. Yes, like all through undergrad, all through college, I was um, a, a bachelor's in science with neuroscientist uh, focus. And um, I spent 90% of the time in a lab with rats, with rats and mice. <laughs> And it truly was my junior year of college where it was literally at midnight. I looked around, I was surrounded by 30 rats and I realized that I was talking to the rats. 
And I was like, I don't, I don't think I belong in a lab by myself because, as you know, I'm a people person. So I started talking to the rats and the walls and myself. And that was a big sign that maybe I needed something um, a little more interactive with actual people. And so um, I, I truly believe at this point in my career that all of the decisions are not only influences and experiences, but mentorship. Mm. And so I happened to re- meet an amazing mentor. Um, he was a neurologist at the University of South Carolina, Dr. David Huang. And he was like, you should consider neurology. It's a really tough field. We have devastating neurological diseases, and it kind of needs someone with your optimism and hope to bring that hope to people who know that they're going to progress and die from these horrible neurological diseases. So I went into neurology. Um, I loved it. I did my residency training. I thought I was going to be a stroke neurologist because I like that adrenaline rush of running to the emergency department, injecting TPA, which is, which is a clot busting medication. Um, but then life changes. So, I mean, it was things like I met my husband in residency Uh, We both have very traditional cultural families that sat us down and said, if you guys really want to have families um, and kids in the future, how are you going to handle children with both of you being on call for the majority of the month? So I'll be honest, it it was a decision that I look back, back and forth on and wonder, did I make the right right decision? Um, But also with the appreciation that Um, There are always opportunities to go back and do things again um, that you might not have handled well the first time around. So in my third year of residency, it's a four-year residency, I actually ended up doing a rotation in sleep medicine. Hmm. And again, it was another mentor. um, And um, it was Chuck Bay who said, hey, you should try sleep medicine. It's really cool field. I think you'd really love it. Um, And I went in very cynical. Like, I'm the one who likes to go to the emergency department and run these stroke codes. How is sleep going to appeal to me? (laughs) Two weeks into it, Joanne, I loved it. I love the fact that it was all about lifestyle modification, preventing horrible neurological diseases, including stroke. Um, And then it had this, like, huge research side, like, to this day, there's like this big question about dreams and elements of sleep. And that really fascinated me, that it wasn't this conquered field or subspecialty within neurology where all the answers had already been discovered. And so I ended up loving it. I did a fellowship. But to take us back to my previous comments, I still miss stroke. So I ended up doing stroke two years later at Mayo and, um, and no regrets at all. I practice both sleep and stroke for about 10 years, but just in the last two years, I do predominantly sleep because it's been really my passion and my focus. And I feel like there's so much work to do in this field and maybe not enough people. Mm, That's very interesting. About maybe a month ago, uh, Dr. Tematayo Bile Chidi was on to talk about sleep health in children. Yes. And people enjoyed that so much. that I got feedback. They want to know about sleep health in adults. And it's interesting to me that there's a need for knowledge about sleep health, but not enough Joyce Lee Ionati's, not enough physicians to A, provide the knowledge and B, provide the treatment and the care. So my first question is about this. I hear people tell me all the time, 
I can get by on three hours of sleep. I can get by on four hours of sleep. I mean, you know, they, they say these things, and I am a person who gets seven to eight hours of sleep a night faithfully. So what do you say to the people who say, no, three is fine, four is fine, you know, five the max? What do you say to that? And is that just like some kind of crazy fantasy that people have? Well, okay. So there, there are some caveats. One, I want to say, um, I'm really happy to hear that you get seven to eight hours of sleep. That makes me truly happy. Um, and it also is why you're so productive and you're so successful. And I want to kind of emphasize that point as well. So there are a very small minority of people who are inherently short sleepers. They can get away with four to five hours of sleep and be totally fine. But based on research studies, Joanne, this is like less than 5% of people, truly. Mm. And they're just, their brains are just wired where they're good at four to five hours. And these are the people in medical, medical school that we called um, the gunners, right? <laughs> they could study all night, they would be top of the class, and they would be totally fine, and they're functioning fine to this day. But the rest of us, the 95% and above the rest of us, we're kind of making it through the day. We're trudging. We're having bad habits and coping mechanisms where we're fooling ourselves into thinking that four to five hours is sufficient. So Americans are the worst, I have to say. I mean, we are the worst country in terms of prioritizing health, in terms of prioritizing sleep, and we are the worst sleepers on the entire globe, which makes me really sad. So what we do as Americans and others do as well is we do heavy caffeine use. I see it all the time, even in, in teenagers who are drinking energy drinks at mm. school or even after school to get their homework done. Again, trudging it through the day, living very suboptimal lives with mediocre energy and just going through life, but not living their true life. Mm. We see it every day. And the mm -hmm. unhealthy effects of sleep deprivation, we can talk about it in more detail is actually really scary and it catches up in the long run. So That's we could probably sustain ourselves for very short times with short sleep. Hmm. But you know, that's the pattern that a lot of people are in and patterns are hard to break. It's, it's a bad habit and they're hard to break. So how, what advice do you give people to help them make sleep hygiene or good sleep, sleep hygiene part of their lives to make it their new norm? It is hard. It is hard to change people. It is really hard. And um, once you're in bad habits, it's hard to break those habits. We know that. And so a lot of what I try to do is a lot of cheerleading, especially for my patients, a lot of breaking it down where it just makes logical sense. So I want to first talk about Dr. Chidi, who you talked about um, before, and she is a powerhouse in sleep and she does so much amazing work, especially with children. And um, <clears throat> I want to emphasize the fact that the earlier we can start good sleep habits in children, the better. And I'm talking like even in four or five-year-olds. Children mimic the patterns of their parents. And all of the studies have shown that if kids have good sleep hygiene and good sleep habits early on, this is life lasting for mm -hmm. their entire lives. And then it translates to their kids and their family and their friends. So it is this pattern that we have to break. We have this old school mentality in America where we wear the badge of honor of sleep deprivation. I'm a hard worker. I want to be successful. Look at me. I stayed up for four nights on call 
even though I wasn't treating my patient in the best form that I could. Um, And we have to break that culture and finally step back and say, we need to prioritize sleep for longevity, for good physical and mental health. And it does take a commitment to sleep hygiene, which is not easy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So where does this start? Like, how does a person really start? I can tell you that I grew up in a household where, you know, you you got your rest. I mean, you went to bed at a set time and you got up at a set time. And so where does this start, particularly for an adult who has been in this negative pattern for a long time? It it starts with a personal commitment, Um, Hmm. just like smoking cessation, just like exercise regimens, um, new diet. It's the new year. So I always say this is a perfect time to say, what can I change that will make an impact for the next 30, 40, 50, 80 years of my life? And so we know that, um, and and I am, I'm, I'm a victim of it too. We have our inherent genetics. These are things that were passed down by our parents, our grandparents, our great grandparents. And so for me, it's like things like diabetes and coronary artery disease and high blood pressure. And at this point, Uh, midlife, I can't change my genetics. But what I can do is the things that I choose every day. And so I try to eat healthy. It's a work in progress, Joanne. I try to exercise another work in progress. But because I know the literature about sleep, and because I preach it every day to my patients, and I don't want to be a hypocrite, it is my number one priority. And so I say to myself, we can go into sleep hygiene tactics, um, just briefly, But it is things like same wake time, same bedtime every single day, regardless of whether it's weekends or vacations, prioritizing that. And there's a lot of technology that has made it a lot easier. So the good old iPhone, you can actually plug in. This is my targeted bedtime. This is my targeted wake time. And 30 minutes before your bedtime, it gives you a notice. And it says, you have to start winding down. It's almost your bedtime. And it gives you cues and it has helped me personally. The other thing is bad behavior. So, Hmm. you know, these are choices that we make, like lying in bed with our phone, trying to check our email, planning the next day. We know that at the molecular level, the blue wavelength is suppressing natural melatonin production. And right around like 50 or so, we're already decreasing our natural melatonin production from our pineal gland. And so we're offsetting that instead of making a hundred units of melatonin, we're now making 50 because we're 50 and above. And with blue wavelength light, we're making 20 and that's Mm. our sleep hormone. Wow. So we're self-sabotaging. We're staying up late to finish work, going out partying New Year's Eve, (laughs) and then um, we're sleeping in. And that ultimately just confuses our brain. Our brain is like, I have no idea when wake time or bedtime is because you change it up on me every day. Mm. And so it's finding that regimen. It's really finding that regimen. It's other habitual things like avoiding alcohol. A glass of wine is fine, but not in excess and certainly not as a way to fall asleep. Smoking at night. Um, Wait, I got to stop you for a second. Mm-hmm. A glass of wine is not a good way to fall asleep? Like well, one glass of wine? No, no, it's, it's one glass is great. I mean, there are cardiovascular benefits, especially to red wine, 
But I do find that some people drink excessively for the sedative effects of wine and alcohol. So okay. they'll use it okay. as, um, uh, gosh, I'm forgetting the old term for it. It's like a night, um, a nightcap. That's mm-hmm. it. Kind of a nightcap. And so some of my patients are like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll have three beers um, and then a wine to help me fall asleep. But again, it's just like a chemical way of inducing sleep. And it actually can bite you back and cause stimulation in the middle of the night. Mm, okay. Okay. But a glass in the evening is not a problem. Okay. That's I just great. wanted, all right. Wanted to be sure about that. What are the guidelines? How many hours of sleep are we supposed to get? Yes. Um, often a great question. The National Sleep Foundation, the sweet spot is seven to nine hours. Okay. So you're right there, Joanne. Um, and I prioritize the seven to nine hours. But it is interesting when that data came out um, in the Lancet Neurology and in the Lancet, um, people were surprised that getting too much sleep was also harmful. So if you get less than seven hours or more than nine hours, that people were getting sicker. They had more comorbidities like coronary artery disease, and they were dying sooner. Mm. So it's really interesting that your brain is in this like two hour sweet spot Mm -hmm. and anything less or more is too little or too much. Too much. That's interesting. So what are the blocks? What are the common blocks that keep people from resting well? I hear, um, I've had lots of friends who say, I just don't rest well. I go to bed, but I don't rest well. Um, And I'm a person who, I, I sleep the sleep of the dead and the damned. When I'm out, I'm out. So when people say they don't rest well, what does, what, what do you, what do you do? How do you help them? Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to get on my soapbox again, but a lot of times when I do hear this, um, some of, oftentimes we can be our worst enemies. So even though it is choices, there are certain predicaments that we find ourselves in, um, that are kind of forced Um, in a way. So for example, just juggling the million balls um, in the air. So work, personal life, church, friends, um, kids, everything. It just kind of compiles the whole day. And you're left thinking 24 hours in a day is just not enough. And so we inundate ourselves with all these things to do. Our lives are really busy. Um, And then people fall into those bad habits that are hard to break because they just don't have the energy and maybe they don't have time to really think it through and plan it. Um, But I will say it's not just a personal choice. Their hereditary genes, their familial sleep patterns that induce insomnia, there's mood disorders that are contributory that we know are seen at the neurotransmitter, like molecular level. There's so many factors that I don't want to come away telling a person you're a poor sleeper because of your choices and it's mm-hmm. solely your fault mm-hmm. because that's not true. There's so many flat factors at play. Okay. Okay. What do you think about taking a sleeping pill every night? Yeah. I get that question a lot, especially in sleep clinic. They've often seen their PCPs, nothing's working. And um, I do use sleeping pills either over the counter or prescription, but the way that they're intended the way it's written by the guidelines by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine is they're intended for short-term use and very intentional and directional. So close monitoring by sleep physician because over-the-counter and 
uh, prescription sleep medications can be very dangerous. And the recommendation is really six months, not longer, unless you need it as needed, for like travel and things, and in combination with cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia with either a sleep physician or a sleep psychologist. Hmm. Okay. Yes. That's very interesting. So are they addicting? They're addicting. They're psychologically addicting. So mm. they're not addicting like, um, you know, um, a street drug or cocaine would be because that's like a, a physical kind of addiction. But what happens is that people um, solely base their sleep and their ability to sleep on something in a capsule. Mm. And they literally think if I don't take this pill tonight, I'm not going to sleep. So I have little old women, Joanne, for like 50, 60 years who have been on medications like Zolpidem. Mm. And I can assure them, I, I tell you, and I say, if I, if I climbed into your house, switched it with a Tic Tac, it would probably at this point have the same effect because your body has already built tolerance to it over just a few years. Mm-hmm. And now it's become a psychological dependence. But I also promise my patients I won't sneak into their house. <laughs> I just got a visual of you sleep, sleep, sneaking into some little lady in Arizona's single-story house, <laughs> getting a cactus bite in your bottom, you know? <laughs> yes. No, I won't do that. I'll be sleeping. <laughs> so if you don't want people taking sleeping pills every night, what do you want them to do? So it really is a lot of um, coaching, a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, a lot uh, telling them that, um, you know, kind of logically explaining that good sleep is not going to be in a pill. There is not a magic pill. And I do break it down to the point that these are chemicals and toxins that you're, you're putting in your body. And we know that eventually they can have harmful effects. Mm-hmm. So just looking at the sleep architecture, there are different stages of sleep. We know REM sleep is really the most important sleep. A lot of the studies have shown that sleeping medications work for like a few months. And then again, they bite you, they bite you back where they start decreasing REM sleep. They start decreasing slow wave sleep, which is really important for reducing your risk of Alzheimer's. Um, And then they've been linked to dementia with Mm. long-term use. That's really interesting. That is very interesting. There's a lot more to learn. We didn't even get to talk about sleep and brain body health, would you be open to coming back to talk about sleep and brain body health? I know that that's another passion area for you. Um, Something you want to talk? Absolutely. I'd love to. Good, good, good. Thank you for coming on today. If there's one thing that you want to reiterate that you want to be sure that listeners got from what we talked about today, what is it? I hope I've convinced you that sleep is modifiable. It's something that we can incorporate in our lives. And it's so important um, to help us with our physical, mental health, and to live our best lives. So just a good night of sleep and a series of night of good sleep can make a life-changing difference. Thank you, Dr. Lee Iannati. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insights. And I'm looking forward to you coming back to talk about the brain-body-sleep connection. Thank you again. Thank you, Dr. Smichael. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you got tools that you'll actually use and share. Subscribe if you haven't already. 
I add new and relevant leadership learning all of the time. If you haven't visited the Smichael Speaks YouTube channel, check it out. There's all sorts of new content. All of this is virtual leadership learning that will help you soar.